0: I know, you think the same. Uh, Turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Now, some of you um, may have noticed uh, you're like, wait a minute, whenever someone gets baptized they join the church because those are inseparably connected. And you are correct. However, um, the sermon will tie both of those together and so Ian will uh, we'll vote on Ian joining the church here at the end of the sermon. Ephesians chapter 2 is a wonderful chapter, and the first half uh, can connect roughly verses 1 through 10, can connect directly to understanding, deepening your thinking about baptism. And then the second half can really help you understand how uh, that actually ties into community and into the community of the local church. And so, Uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, uh, and then we'll start working through those together. This is what Paul writes, the church at Ephesus. He says this, verse 1, chapter 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This morning we want to understand the truth, the reality that God is displayed through his rescue of sinners from death to life and from loneliness to community. So let's unpack that death to life, that first half uh, right at the start here of the sermon. I've always been fascinated with magicians. Now, I don't mean the Gandalf and Dumbledore kind, but more like the Harry Houdini, David Copperfield, Penn and Teller kind. I, I know it's fake. I know it's a trick. And some of it's just the way my mind works—that I'm always trying to figure out how things happen, how things are done, and so uh, I've always been fascinated by these guys' ability to do a trick. And and then when I can't figure it out, it really sells it for me. Um, some of you maybe watch America's Got Talent, and you'll see these kind of young or or really they're professional but rookie kind of magicians, and typically. Typically, I can figure out how they did the trick. And and so one of the things I've noticed about these guys over the years is they always amp up uh, what's going on to make the trick even seem more difficult than what it is, right? It's not enough that they're going to be submerged underwater, but it's going to be for like five or eight minutes longer than anybody else has ever held their breath before. But wait, there's more. They'll be chained. But wait, there's more. They're strapped to a bomb. But wait, there's even more. The, the uh, switch that's will, that will diffuse the bomb is on the back of a roaring lion who has on the back of it an Army Ranger with an M4 100 yards away. Watch as I escape the water. And they always just amp it up, amp it up, amp it up. Um, and, I, and I'm amused by it. I think it's funny. We all know it's not really death-defying. And they know that. And so in order to make us buy in to the trick, in order to make their skills seem more amazing, they have to create, manufacture fake ways to make it more enticing and engaging for us. Now, of course, they're not original with us. God does this many times in the Bible, except his are never fake. They're real, and it presents a scenario that you're really left with the mindset of how could this happen in 1 Kings 18. Elijah has this famous showdown with the prophets of Baal. Now, Baal was the dominant idol, kind of the overarching idol of the Middle and Near East. And uh, one of the things in particular Baal was the god of was rain and dew. And so that's part of the reason during Elijah's day, God said, fine, I'm going to send a drought where there's no rain and no dew uh, to show you who's really in control. And so there comes this moment where Elijah's in the valley and you have the prophets of Baal and you have Elijah. And Elijah says, Let's call down fire from our God to consume the sacrifice. And so the prophets of Baal are whipping themselves, beating themselves. Elijah is famously mocking them. Uh, I just love it. He's like, Maybe, maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he's gone on a long journey. And finally, it's Elijah's turn. So he digs a ditch around this sacrifice and he brings water. And you may be wondering, Where did the water come from? Even though they were in a time of drought, particularly the prophets of Baal had lots of water as part of their worship exercises. And so they bring barrels of water, and they dump water on the sacrifice again and again and again, I think three barrels full, till the the sacrifice, this animal, is just completely drenched. The wood is completely drenched. It's running down, it's filled up this trench around it. And then Elijah basically says, God, can you consume? Boom! Fire comes down and consumes all of it. And so it seems to be this insurmountable obstacle just calling down fire anyway, let alone this waterlogged and water-sodden sacrifice. It's a symbol of God's power overcoming impossible odds. It's not a trick. Later on, in Ezekiel 37, the prophet Ezekiel is led famously into what's called the Valley of Dry Bones. And he's there, and there's been a massive battle that occurred, and there's all these corpses that have been left behind pick clean by the scavengers. The bones are now white and bleached, laying in the valley, and God tells Elijah to start preaching to these bones. And so Elijah obeys, and the wind comes, and as it stirs among the bones, God begins by his creative power to bring flesh and muscle and sinew and skin, and then finally life into them, so this army rises up to follow and serve him. It's a glorious image of the power of God to save the dead it's not a trick it's power jesus famously waits 4 days after he hears that his dear friend lazarus is dead 4 days before he finally goes to the graveyard tells them to roll away the stone they complain but jesus by now he stinks they understood that the decay of death would have arrived and that roll back the stone would have been to Open the air to experience the full smell of death. I don't know if you know this. When you smell something, it's not just this uh, mystical thing that's going on. You actually are intaking and ingesting into your body microscopic particles of that very thing. Now, that's gross. It's, It's wonderful when it's nice, but that's gross when you think of you actually are going to ingest death in this moment. And Jesus calls Lazarus to come forth, and he does. Why does Jesus wait four days in part to demonstrate his power? It's not a trick. It's to set forth the incredible power of God. Now, Paul wants us to understand that truth. When someone is saved, it is nothing less than the miraculous power of God alone. God raises dead people to live. It's the same God who can send fire from heaven. It's the same God who can make bones stir. It's the same God who can make Lazarus come stumbling out like some Boris Karloff mummified lookalike. It's the same God that if you're here this morning, he opened your eyes and he made you live. And if you don't know him this morning, he very well may be calling you like he called the Lazarus. Wake up and come out. Come to me. And so, first of all, let's, let's look at the death. Verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course or the pattern, the, the road map of this world, is what it, the GPS of this world. And what is that GPS ruled by? Not by Siri. Following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan himself. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and among whom... We all were once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's obviously talking here about spiritual death, not physical death. He's using the illustration of physical death to help us to understand spiritual death. We know this because this person is walking and talking and behaving. When you're physically dead, you don't do any of those things. And so this is a spiritual death. It's the condition of every single person from the moment of their conception. Paul describes in vivid details the symptoms of death. To be spiritually dead is showcased in three ways in these verses. First of all, they are of the power, uh, they are of their father, the devil. Now this ties in super tight with what Darren just preached last week in John chapter 8. They have a dad, and it's the devil. A few weeks ago, my youngest turned 13. Uh, My wife posted uh, a happy birthday thing on Facebook. One of my cousins, whom I I literally have not seen in over 20 years, he wished my my son a happy birthday. He said, happy birthday, you look just like your dad at that age. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, and probably Aaron hopes that's not true, but um, there are parts of who my children are that when you look at them, you see and experience their dad. You just do. Whether it is some artistic ability. I have small, God has given my daughter a lot. Whether it's a love of history and reading and knowledge and information, God has given me some, he's given Ian a lot. Whether it's uh, my, my love for athletics and sports, he's given me a little, he's given my son a lot. But they are of their father, Steve, it's notable to them. The first marker of spiritually dead people is they are of their father, the devil. In John chapter 8 last week, Darren so helpfully and clearly pointed out what that means, that it means that you are a liar, the devil is a liar. Satan is a liar from the beginning. That means that you are resistant to truth. You don't want to hear it. You don't want to have it. It doesn't break through to you. It doesn't make sense to you. You resist the truth. And thirdly, you are a murderer. Murderer? Yes. You consume others for your own gain. But more pointedly, you kill Christ with your own son. And so you are of your father, the devil. Ultimately, you will murder your own soul. Secondarily, Paul points out that they live by their own passions. They're ruled by their passions. They're not just of their father, the devil, but their passions rule them. The Greek word here is epithymia. It's translated as coveting elsewhere in the New Testament. Or lusts, or passions, or desires. How do we understand this? Lost people, unsaved people, spiritually dead people... They long for things, but it's always self-fulfilling. This is why the false gospel preeminent in our day, have your best life now, is so dangerous. Because it's telling people, follow your own heart, follow your own passions, your own desires, be on mission for your own happiness, and Jesus is on mission for that too. No, he's not. Your father the devil is. Now, some then think, oh, then does Jesus want me to be miserable? No, if you you had had the joy to be with us over the summer, you might remember the culmination of union with Christ is what? Jesus said that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. The great lie of Satan is that ultimate happiness will be found in fulfilling what you want. The true deliverance of the gospel is true abiding, overflowing joy. They used to say it this way when I was a kid, I need God I want God to bless my, my cup so much that the saucer gets a blessing, right? That it just overflows. True joy is found not in serving your own epithemia, your own passions, but abiding in Christ. But the spiritually dead are marked by this. It's a heart of craving that's convinced if I could have my desires, I'll be happy, as opposed to what God desires for me. Ian. So eloquently stated that in his testimony. He was afraid to follow Jesus because he was afraid Jesus would ask him of something of him that would reduce his happiness. I don't want to follow that. Thirdly, though, thirdly, they think their own way. It's a very way of processing. It says they carry out the desires of the body, in verse 3, and the mind. Later in chapter 4, Paul is going to make it very clear that saved people don't think like lost people. Let me be very clear. I'm not saying saved people are smarter than lost people. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying they are are filled with more worldly wisdom and understanding. I'm I'm not saying that at all. But they don't think the same way. Uh, A few weeks ago we went on vacation. We were down at um, Orlando, went to what's it called? Is it Disney Springs? Is that what it's called? The shopping area? You go into Disney Springs, you go down this escalator, first thing you see is this place that sells poutine. How many of you know what poutine is? It's weird. It's French fries covered in some kind of brown gravy with cheese curds on it. Now you might be thinking who in their right mind came up with this? No one. It was a Canadian. I I don't know. Maybe there's a Canadian somewhere, like, I'll never be back to that church again. I don't know. Let me back it up. It was amazing. It was so good. I'm like, I don't know who came up with that. My mind wouldn't have. They think different, right? They think different. You've been in different cultures, they think different. When I was on the streets of Hong Kong, I kept trying to walk on the right side of the sidewalk because that's what we do here. And they don't operate that way. So few people drive in Hong Kong that they just walk wherever. And like you're just dodging bullets the whole time. I mean, just slamming into people. They think different. It's not that I think better. We think different. Lost people think differently than saved people. And he's going to crunch it down uh, ultimately in chapter 4 to this concept. Lost people don't think I should obey Christ. Saved people think I should obey Christ. That's what you could really boil it down to. Who is the king of my life? Who is the lord of my life? Who commands me? Saved people think, what would Jesus have me to do? Lost people think, what do I want to do? They think different. Say people prize loving others. They prize holiness, truth, and peace. Why do they do this? He tells us because it's their nature. We're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. They sin because they are sinners. To be dead... Physically is the irreversible condition of no brain function and a cessation of circulatory and respiratory function, i.e., your heart's not beating, your lungs aren't moving, and your brain can't tell them to. That's physically dead. To be dead spiritually means that you are on a collision course with judgment because you are resistant to the truth, you refuse to repent. You follow what you think is best, and you reject your desperate need of Christ. It's not just that they're dead, but wait, there's more. They resist the truth that would bring them out of death, but wait, there's more. They kill the truth messenger who would tell them of the gospel, but wait, there's more. They think they've done a good thing in all that. And so Saul felt no guilt as he stood there watching them rain stones down upon Stephen. The Pharisees felt no guilt as they watched the Son of God die in front of them. They felt like they had done a good thing. And so he moves from death, though, to resurrection. You see it in verses 4 through 7. But God, two of the greatest words in the New Testament, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. To be raised to life is the miraculous glory of the gospel itself. It is The miracle of salvation. We call it conversion, redemption, regeneration, justification. We throw all these terms around it that all define a different part of what salvation is. But at the core, we use salvation because it means you've been saved from sure judgment. It's new life. It's fire falling from heaven overcoming drenched wood and filling a pit and fire coming and consumes all of it in an instant. It's a miracle. It's it's dead bleached bones suddenly rising up into fully formed humans that breathe, breathe and live and think again and now they move. It's a dead decaying stinking man stumbling out wrapped in clothes so that Jesus has to say untie that man so he can go about his day. It's a miracle. It's having your eyes open to see that you're a sinner. Repenting of your sin. Believing in the grace, the mercy, the love, and the forgiveness of God. It is all of God and none of us. Dead people don't raise themselves. Sinners don't save themselves. What does this new life look like then? Verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now at this point, Paul seems to make a fairly shocking statement. He makes a big deal, this is God's work, not ours. Why does he have to do that here? He has to do it because salvation, hear me now, is such a radical transforming work in someone's life that other people will notice and there will be a temptation to take credit for it. Now, that shouldn't be hard for us to understand because we live in the day and the age of the influencer. Right? We live in the day and the age where the Instagram photo... Look at what I can do. Look at how I look, right? Um, you know, like, <laughs> people are the poster child for it. So um, everything from, from education, look at my achievement, to weight loss, look how much weight I've lost, to strength training, look how much more I can lift now, Look at, to speed training, look how faster I am, look at the accolades I've got, look at the, look at me, look at me, look at me, is what it screams. Look at who I am. Look at what I've done. And now you be inspired by me. And the truth is, when Paul begins saying things in verse 10, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, the temptation for some would be to want to take some of the credit. It's Jesus and me, right? Like, Jesus may have opened my eyes, Steve, but I walked the aisle. (laughs) I like how Spurgeon put it. You and I added nothing to our salvation about the sin that required it. Like, that's all I brought, my wickedness. That's all you brought, your deadness, your wickedness, your sinfulness. People love to get some credit. Are we not reading the words? They're written by the Holy Spirit through a former persecutor of the church. A man who murdered Christians. Christians. Did we not sing a new version, but Amazing Grace this Morning, written by a former slave captain turned hymn writer and minister of the gospel? Have you heard of the former Nazi guard who stumbled forward at one of Corey Ten Boom's talks and she immediately recognized him as one of the the Nazi's who guarded at Ravensbrück, where her sister died in the concentration camps, and he stumbled forward to her, and he asked her forgiveness. He said, I've asked Jesus to forgive me. I've been saved. I've been transformed. But it would mean oh so much to me if you would forgive me as well. How do Nazis get saved? How do slave captains become M-writers and ministers of the gospel? How does a persecutor of the church become an apostle? Because God makes dead people live. The temptation for some would be to take credit. Jesus calls people out of their graves. Jesus pierces through our unbelief. Jesus takes our deaf ears and makes them open. He takes our blind eyes and makes us see. He gives us the lame legs to walk upon to stumble forward to him. He makes the leper whole so that they can be holy with him. It's God's work. They were dead, and now they live. God knew we needed a way to celebrate this. We needed a reminder of what has happened. And so he gave us a mighty symbol of death. All the way back in the Old Testament, the very first time my son began to express in more mature understanding a grasp of the gospel is when we had him begin to sit in here in the services and I was preaching The book of Jonah. This is years ago. And Jonah is a mighty symbol of death, as he is thrown into the ocean. He goes to the depths of the sea. He's swallowed by this great fish. And he spends three days in the belly of the whale. It's such a profound image of death that later Jesus would say, the only sign I'm going to give this generation is the sign of Jonah, that just as he was three days in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days in the belly of the earth. It's a powerful image of death. And so like Jonah was in the water for three days, like Jesus was in the grave for three days, we take a believer And we put them down into the waters of baptism like death. But they don't stay there. Jonah comes out, Jesus comes forth. The believer is raised up out of the water. He knows that we would be prone to forget, and so at the very start, of a believer's journey, he says, baptize them. Did you know that even the Roman Catholic Church practiced immersion baptism until the Middle Ages? Sprinkling and pouring came about as a result of various forms of persecution, frankly, to make it easier and to dress it up a little bit. Because who wants to get soaking wet? My only point with that is everybody knew that it's a symbol of death. It's not a symbol of washing. There's no soap. There's no scrubbing around. It's death. And he said, you need this picture. What you watched this morning, if you're sitting here this morning, and you know Jesus. What you witnessed this morning is what you, uh, by God's grace, I hope you have experienced. And you were reminded in that moment, I died and I've been raised to life. It's a transformation moment. Baptism shows us this. Rejoice in it. That's the first half. The second half now, verses 11 through 22. Now, <clears throat> I'll read this in just a moment. Let me introduce it this way. A U.S. Department of Justice report referenced a study that looked into the effects of solitary confinement on prisoners on death row. Uh, as we know, we have the greatest judicial system in the, in the world, and our judicial system is also very broken. Like, it just, it's both of those things at the same time. You have to hold that tension. And so one of the things we do poorly is death row. Whether you're pro-death penalty or against, that's not my point. But we don't do it well because people can languish on death row for over 20, 30 years. And then other times we've killed people that then later we found out they were innocent. We don't do it great. This particular study was just looking at those on death row. And it has become the habit of most states for prisoners on death row to be held in solitary confinement. Because the perspective is they're a danger. But there are results of this. Many of the cells are about the size of a bathroom in a normal house. They have no physical contact with anyone ever. They are withheld access to religious care. Death row inmates in solitary confinement frequently are restricted to no access to a minister of the gospel. In many cases, they're not even permitted to have a Bible. And if anyone needs a Bible and someone to share the love of Christ with them, somebody in solitary confinement on death row, we don't do this well. They're restricted from mental health care. They're typically limited to one hour a week of outside time. One prisoner, Anthony Graves, he spent years on death row in solitary confinement for a crime he didn't commit. He was in Texas. It was a brutal crime. A family of six were murdered. And then their house set on fire. The man who actually did it accused him in order to try to lessen his own sentence. Anthony Graves was found guilty and spent 18 years in solitary confinement on death row. He said this I saw guys who dropped their appeals because of the intolerable conditions. Before his execution, one inmate told me he would rather die than continue existing under these inhumane conditions. I saw guys come to prison sane and leave this world insane, talking nonsense on the execution gurney. One guy suffered some of his last days, smearing his feces everywhere, lying naked in the recreation yard and urinating on himself until they strapped him in the chair and killed him. And the point of this study was to reveal that there is a fate that seems worse than death. And it's to put a person in a place where they are utterly and completely alone. Now, how could that be? Because God never intended for us to be alone. In fact, His creation wasn't declared good until He had given Adam a companion, a community. We need others. He intends for us to do life with others. Only one step away from death, this type of confinement is known to produce mental instability, literally driving prisoners insane. Before we are saved, we are alienated from God and others. The core of the gospel is a call to love God and love others. Central to our sinfulness is that we are isolated from God and others. God and others exist for the lost person just to satisfy them. When we were lost, we loved because we loved the moment of it. We loved how it made us feel. I'm not saying there was no love, but I am saying at the end of the day, it's a self-consuming kind of love. It's isolating. It leaves us insecure and fearful. People exist to make us happy, to meet our needs, to be our servants. All the way back in the garden, when sin enters the world, what it does is it drives a wedge. It drives a wedge between Adam and Eve. Separating humanity one from another. It, it drives a wedge between humanity and the animal kingdom, driving a wedge, an inseparable wedge forever. And it drives a wedge between humanity and God so that we clothe ourselves with fig leaves and hide in the bushes and blame Him for our condition. If God were to bring us from death to life, what good is it to look at someone who's been condemned to death and say, we're not going to electrocute you anymore, but we're going to put you in solitary confinement with no physical contact, no hope, no truth, no love, no affection, and you can live the rest of your days that way. Death row inmates tell us they'd rather die. It's a fate worse than death. And so if God saves us, but he does not solve our isolation problem. What good is it? And so Paul turns his attention to that. Verse 11, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, now, okay, let me back up, let me just preempt this. So Paul wants to help us understand this concept. How do I help you understand it? hmm, Paul thinks, and some of this is particular to the church in Ephesus and in Galatians, they had the same struggles. Let me use the conflict that we have with other people, and I'm going to use the conflict of Gentiles and Jews to picture this sense of isolation. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do that? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, and he preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul uses several terms to describe this brokenness that we have in our relationships prior to our salvation. You can think of it primarily as our isolation. In verse 12 alone, he says what? He says we're separated from Christ. He says we're alienated from Israel, who were God's people. He says that we're strangers without hope. Have you ever been to a place where you can't read directions? You don't know where you're at? You don't speak the language? That's what it's like for the lost person. They get saved, and they're still like, where where do I fit in? prior to their salvation they definitely don't fit in and they're a stranger and an alien one of the things we always have to work at as a church and as Christian people is that our language and our lingo doesn't become a barrier to people understanding the gospel because we have all kinds of Christian lingo we say things like universal church, you're like huh is there some global empire is this, you know we we use this language and it's like what do we mean There's a strangeness to it, and we're outside of it because we were resistant to truth. Later in verse 13, he says, uses words like this, we were far off. We're far away. In verse 14, we're separated by a wall of hostility. And this word hostility, that mindset of animosity, of an enemy, of anger, of resistance, hostility, it becomes the dominant way Paul describes this isolation. In our lost condition, we are hostile to God and others. The Jews and the Gentiles would have nothing to do with one another. The Gentiles were considered unclean to the Jews. Even those that wanted to come worship at the temple said the Gentiles who would come and say, we actually believe and we worship the same God. The Jews are like, okay, here's a courtyard that you can go to, but no further. That would be like if we had a sign on these doors out here that when you walked in, it said that unless your last name is this, you can't come in here. Or unless you look like this, you can't come in here. Or unless you dress like this, you can't come in here. Or unless you carry a certain version of the Bible, you can't come in here. Or unless you have the same standards I have about movies, entertainment, the beach. Wait a minute, now I'm stepping on toes because there's whole movements that that's exactly what they do, isn't it? And many of us grew up in them. We said, no, we're hostile to you. And the Jews would look at the Gentiles, and even if they said, We worship the same God, we believe as you do, they kept them out in the courtyard. No, you can't come in. You don't belong. And so there's this hostility. To be saved is wonderful. To be alive is better than to be dead. But isolation brings its own suffering. Imagine if a family had a, if you had a family member and they were in a, in a horrible, they had a horrible accident, and, and they're in a coma, and so it's like they are dead. My, my grandfather on my mom's side, he um, had a number of health conditions, and, and as I was growing up, and there were several times I vividly remember going to visit him because he was in the hospital and he was in a coma. I don't know Now, what induced those comatose states in him, but I remember going, and it's like, if you've been with someone, it's like they're dead. Like, the only reason you know they're alive is they haven't turned gray, and there's a monitor there beeping. But they look dead. And I remember as a family, gathering around my grandfather and um, folks praying and uh, singing and just being with him, and it was a kind of death watch. And I said this happened several times. I remember at least two or three times and he would come out of the coma. Well, imagine this. Imagine if the whole family was gathered there for that week or so that he's in a coma state. But the moment he comes out of it and he wakes up, everyone's like, oh, we don't need to visit anymore. We just isolate him. That would make no sense, would it? Neither does it make any sense for a person to come to Christ and be isolated. That makes no sense. He tells us because you've been brought into a community. Since hostility is the dominant way of describing our isolation and sin, it shouldn't surprise us then that the word Paul uses most to describe what we now are is the word peace. You were hostile, but now you're at peace. Verses 13 through 16, Christ is our peace. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. What does that mean? When we are saved... We are put into Christ, and Christ is at perfect peace with the Father. When God looks upon you, you're saved. He no longer sees you as this horrific sinner. He sees his own son, and so you are at peace with the Father. When we relate to one another, we are called by God's grace to forgive one another as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. We see Jesus in each other. We are at peace With one another. We forbear one another because of Jesus in us and in one another. God is knitting together a people of peace because Christ is our peace. He fulfilled the law, so the law no longer separates us from God and from others. Jesus tears down this wall of hostility. Commentators are divided. What does he mean by this wall of hostility? Is he talking about the veil in the temple that when Jesus died it was rent into? But that wasn't really a wall of hostility. What's he talking about? There are some ancient rabbis that reference the court of the Gentiles, the wall that separated them as the dividing wall or the hostile wall. He has destroyed that which would keep us from other people who believe. Christ is our peace. He is not just, he not just is our peace, he preaches peace. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off. That's talking about Gentiles. They were way out <laughs> And peace to those who were near, the Jews. Because just by virtue of the fact that you were Jew didn't mean you were saved. He doesn't just make a way, he shows us the way. Paul is actually pointing back to and quoting passages from Isaiah 57 at this point. Isaiah 57, you're like, but Steve, I don't have that memorized off the top of my head. Great, neither did I. But it's talking about the, the, the feet of the messenger of peace. And how beautiful it is when someone brings a message of peace. I I just want you to know this morning, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I bring you a message of peace. You who are far off can come near. You who are hostile can be made at peace. And I remind you, oh brothers and sisters in Christ, I remind you that he has brought you a message of peace and of belonging. It's not just that he creates peace. It's not just that he is peace. It's not just that he preaches peace. He's saying war is over. Peace is here. Safety is found in Christ. There's that famous photo uh, taken in New York Times Square of the sailor kissing the nurse, right? They don't know each other, but it's peace. Everybody gets excited. We're at peace now. He says that it's over. I want everyone to know the work is accomplished. It's not just that he is peace, it's not just that he preaches peace. He makes a new people then. He takes those who were formerly enemies and brings them together, says this in verse 19. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, your fellow citizens. What are the marks of a new people? They have agreed on ethical norms. We all agree about what's right and what's wrong. We unite relationally. Even if we are at odds with one another, nobody better mess with one of them, right? Like, it's kind of like I grew up with three brothers. We could fight and wrestle and have problems, but you better not touch my brother. We're a family. We are a new people. In verse 19, but in verses 20 through 22, he tells us, I make you into a new community. What does it look like? He describes it. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What is he talking about? What is this community? Well, Jesus is the cornerstone. That's the stone that would set everything right. You build off of that so everything is straight. And then you have the apostles and prophets on top of it. And he's starting to, by doing this, Paul's telling us exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the church. The truth and work of Christ. Now the truth and work of the apostles and prophets. And he says we're being stacked right on them. We are literally living stones being built on the living stone the chief cornerstone that was a stumbling block. We build upon him. When we're saved, we're brought into this wonderful family, this community, this building of God's people. It's not just that we've been delivered from death to life, but that we are set free from isolation and brought into community. This community transcends all barriers. Paul makes the same case To the Church of Galatia, who struggled with some of the same exact issues, and so he says it this way in Galatians three twenty-eight: There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, if death to life, he gave us a glorious symbol a living illustration of that that we could set our eyes on in baptism, could it be, is there a possibility that he gave us a living illustration to remind us that we have been brought from isolation into a community? Yup, it's called local church membership. Now, before we get to that, I want you to know None of this is about you. None of this is about me. None of this is about Ian. It's actually all to put Christ on display. Go all the way back to verse 10. We're almost done. When we're saved, brought from death to life, why? Because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared before him that we should walk in them what happens when Christ brings a person from death to life? When I was a boy growing up, I always thought of it in extremes. Surely we would see it with martyrs like Jan Hus being burned at the stake for bringing the word to people. Now that is God's workmanship of good works. Or of Jim Elliot dying by the hands of the Al- Alcas. Surely that is God's workmanship in good works. Or Hudson Taylor losing the warehouse burning to the ground of literally his life's work of translation and writing and bringing the gospel message in Mandarin, literally burning to the ground toward the end of his life, and him pressing on, and I'm still going to obey. Adoniram Judson burying three wives while in the mission field, serving for over a decade before he saw his first convert. Surely this is God's workmanship, created for good works that shows the power of Christ. Or Paul going from persecutor of the church to proclaimer of the gospel. I want you to know this though, the way I thought of this as a boy was not wrong but it was not enough. Those are signs of God's workmanship. But I'm also convinced today that it's the Christian man fighting for purity and holiness. That it's the teenager refusing to cheat because he serves God and not a great alone. That it's the faithful Christian mom loving and serving her family. It's the sacrifice of service for the sake of the kingdom in the nursery or cutting the grass or in the sound booth. It's the Christian executive leading her team and company with integrity. It is good works, spirit-empowered, Christ-honoring work done against our flesh because we have life in him. Don't minimize Christ's work in you coming out of you thinking it has to be some noticeable size. Jesus said if you give a cup of cold water in my name, That's a good work that I'm going to reward. How can Jesus be seen in you today? You're like, I don't know, Steve. Love God. Love others. And when that happens, it's a miracle of life. Because you can't do that apart from him. You can't. You can't. Oh, my friend, I know so many of you come to church every Sunday feeling beat up that you are not the Christian you hope to be, want to be, or think God wants you to be. And I just want you to know the Heavenly Father rejoices over you. He sets you on this journey. He is not frustrated irritated with you. What a horrible parent we would be if watching a one-year-old try to walk, we looked at him and said, how dare you keep falling down? What is the matter with you? No, what do we do? We make sure they got a clean diaper because it's bad if they fall on a a dirty one. We prop them up. We kneel down in front of them. We dangle a toy. And we say, come to Daddy. Come to Mommy. I'm looking at you, Maverick. Come to Uncle Steve. They fall down. We prop them back up. We say, you can do it. You did so well. Do you really think that we're better parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, neighbors, and friends than King Jesus? The fact is when we walk by faith in the spirit and we love God and others more than us, it puts Jesus on display. But a new community shows Christ. And this, this starts to intertwine because in Hebrews 10, he told some Christians were drifting into isolation. And he said, don't forsake, don't give up getting together with others that you might provoke each other to love and good works. Maybe sometimes you're filled with pride like I am and I don't like to be served by others. But maybe God put me in, my path, in your path so you could serve me a little bit. Like, that's hard to say, but it's true. And sometimes he surrounds us with people that we just need to love and we step all over our pride and we sacrifice and we just love them and he uses this to knit us together and he says you need to get together with other Christians, this community and encourage one another, provoke one another, push one another, sometimes confront one another but sometimes frankly just cheer each other on and say you're doing a great job loving God and others. Keep up the good work. I see Jesus in you. The universal church is wonderful. Wonderful. That is the hidden reality that all believers are in. But God was kind to us. And He gave us a local assembly where we can make it visible. And so, this messed up, messy, (laughs) dysfunctional community called the local church, we don't need to be perfect. We only need Him and His love and His truth to rule and reign among us as believers, to see God, to meet with God. They used to have to go to the temple, but instead, he now says, gather together. In just a moment, Ian's going to come up, and he will follow God in obedience. obedience He will seek to unite with this church in membership. Many of you have known him for many years. When we came, he was four months old. He just turned 17 this past spring. You've known him as Beth, Ann, and Steve's son. But today that shifts, and he becomes part of the building of Christ, a living stone united with you to showcase the very presence of God. How will Christ be shown his mercy, his love, his grace, his power, his very presence through making dead people live and then by bringing them together in family with one another? It's deliverance from death. It's also deliverance from isolation. God is displayed through his rescue of sinners from death to life and loneliness to community. Ian, if you stand way over there, it's not as apparent how much taller you are than me. (laughs) So you have heard his testimony of salvation and you have witnessed his baptism this morning. Um, Darren, I think, shared that he sat down with Ian and, and heard his testimony as well. And so Ian desires to unite with this church in membership. And so, is there a motion that we accept Ian into the membership of Conan Road Baptist Church? Will, make some, is there a second to that? Tyler seconds that motion. All those in favor, signify by raising your right hand. All opposed, the same sign. I want to make sure we wait long enough for any Passes unanimously. It is my joy to welcome you into the membership of the church. Um, Yeah, you're okay to get a little Bapticostal. That's not going to offend anyone else. I don't know why you people are so emotional. So, um, I'm going to pray and then we'll sing a closing hymn together. Uh, We'll be dismissed right at the end of that hymn. Ian, I'll have you stand at the back so folks can greet you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today and...